0: Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. You have a Bible this morning, church. I invite you to meet me in the letter of Philippians, Philippians in chapter 3. The particular passage that we are going to consider this morning comes in verses 12 to 16. But since we're parachuting into the book of Philippians and dropping in here just for one Sunday, I want to read the whole of chapter 3 of Philippians. If you have a church Bible, that's found on page 1,165, 1,165, and I want to speak from the subject this morning, ambition resurrected, ambition resurrected. Let's look at the word of the Lord once again. The apostle Paul writes, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thanks be to God once again for his word. Another brief prayer. Our Father in heaven, we say that sincerely, not out of rote repetition. We do give thanks for your word. Blessed be the God of Holy Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would give us the due diligence that your word requires, that you would give us grace to accept it with faith, to store it in our hearts, and ultimately to practice it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have taken up the letter of Philippians and a few verses from Philippians very intentionally this morning. You might be wondering, where, uh, where did we decide on going to the book of Philippians? The reason we are here is because it has been our pattern over the past few years to begin with the end in mind, to begin the year, the year considering the end of the world, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, what we call the consummation Of all things. It's good for us to think about the end. It's good for us to think about the goal of life, what's historically been called the telos. Where are we going? How are we getting there? And so this is what we have done. We've decided to begin with the end in mind. We also confessed this morning, just moments ago, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I was considering last night the book of 1 Thessalonians, where the Apostle Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. I don't know if you've been to a graveside funeral over the past year, but there's gonna come a day when someone's in the process of being buried, and all the graves are gonna break open, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. This is a historical event. we have to look forward to in the same creed we confess that he is going to come again that is Jesus to judge the living and the dead this is very much a end times type creed it's a very short creed but it has several things that point to the end so the reason we're doing this taking the first Sunday of the year to focus on final things is because the word of God compels us to You can't go very far in the New Testament or in the Old Testament without being confronted with the fact that the day of the Lord is at hand. All of the apostles believed that they were living in the final days. The apostle John in 1 John is so convinced that the return of Christ is so near that he doesn't just call it the last day. He calls it the last hour. We're not dealing with days We're dealing with ours, according to John. The Lord Jesus is at hand. Now, there's a danger when we consider the end of the world. And that is that it somehow paralyzes us. That we become complacent. That we become idle. But the consummation of the world is not designed to paralyze us. It's meant to provoke us to love and good works. This is the way the return of Christ has always functioned. It's not meant to paralyze us, but to provoke us and to give us practical wisdom for life. Without vision, without a vision of the return of Christ, people will cast off restraint. We don't know where we're going. What are we doing here? Where are we going? So we must keep the end in mind. Now, you know that this is true. I believe you've probably seen this principle at work in various areas of your life. One example I think will make the point Just a stone's throw from where Olivia and I live, there is a brand-new condo building that's been under construction for over two years. And before they even broke ground on the new condo building, what did they have? They had an artistic rendition of the condo hanging on the fence before they even put one shovel in the ground. They begin with the end in mind, because the end allows them to work efficiently, effectively, and actually build the condos that they set out to build. Could you imagine how dangerous it would be for a bunch of grown men to have hammers and saws in their hands and be worrying every day about where the bathroom's going to go, where the kitchen sink is going to go? Having the end in mind allows them just to put the bathroom where they decided the bathroom was going to go and to put the kitchen sink where they decided the kitchen sink was going to go. Without vision, people cast off restraint. Having the end in mind allows us to live effectively, practically this side of Jesus' return. And a big part of focusing on the end is actually developing goals that allow us to reach that end. By January 1, 2024, they wanted to have the condo building complete. In order to do that, they had to have minor goals along the way in order to achieve that desired end. And this is the prime time of the year to set goals. You've probably heard it on the radio, on the TV. You've eavesdropped on some coworkers this week who are talking about their goals that they're setting for the year. Ambition is in the air. Objectives are being finalized. Hope abounds in every heart of those who look to the future. And so here we are. In Philippians chapter 3, and we see a collision of all of these concepts, the end of the world, the end product, so to speak, and goals that we need to set in order to get to that end effectively. And what I think we're going to see in Philippians 3 is that the end of the world and the goals we set in order to attain that in a good standing is actually a mark of Christian maturity. This is what it actually means to grow up in the Lord Jesus is to have our minds set on his return and to set goals accordingly. So here, the collision of the return of Christ, the goals we ought to set and the process of maturing is found in Philippians 3 and specifically in verses 12 to 16. And I think God is trying to communicate one thing to us this morning, and it's this, that ambition for the resurrection is the standard of Christian maturity ambition for the resurrection is the standard of Christian maturity. You think to yourself, that's a bad thing. Isn't it ambition? That's a bad thing. Isn't ambition always a selfish thing? Isn't it in this very letter? The letter of Philippians that Paul says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. How could you or Paul or anyone be advocating for more ambition? This seems like a total reversal of what we expect to hear in church. Well, here's the thing. You've got me on the first point, which is that this is precisely the letter where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. He prohibits anything to be done out of selfish ambition. But here's the question. What's the opposite of selfish ambition? The opposite of selfish ambition is not no ambition, it's selfless ambition. By not having any ambition, you're not solving the problem for doing things out of selfish ambition. The opposite of selfish ambition is selfless ambition. I was chatting with Adam Wheaton earlier this week and he said last Sunday he, he was at lunch and You know, sometimes the tables at lunch are so close together that you're not even trying to eavesdrop on the conversation, but you just do because they're so close. And he said he saw a mother and her kids walk in and they sat down at the table and she was like, hey, you know, kids, this is the time of year where you set New Year's resolutions. You set goals. My goal this year is to focus more on myself. My goal this year is to focus more on myself. Now, it's easy to cast stones, but whether or not we would articulate that to our kids or our neighbors or our family and friends, don't often we have the same types of goals as that lady who sat down at lunch. If we misunderstand ambition, a major part of our operating system as a church is going to have a bug in it. We need to understand how to actually Resurrect ambition, to redeem it, to use it not for our purposes, but for the purposes of the gospel. And in order to resurrect ambition, we need to first define it. So here's how I would define ambition ambition is a strong desire to achieve a specific goal fueled by determination and diligence, it's a mindset to pursue a goal no matter how much risk is involved. If you're at least somewhat with me on that page, that this is what ambition is, then you can clearly see this is a neutral concept. It's simply a strong desire. That's all that ambition is. The fork in the road is the end at which ambition is pointed. Is it pointed at you or is it pointed at something or someone far greater than you? Ambition is simply a vehicle for us to achieve a certain end. Either selfish or selfless. Our ambition as a church needs to be for the resurrection. We need to be ambitious to attain the resurrection from the dead. You say to yourself, that sounds very works righteousness. Well, that's exactly what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And if we get this right, church, I believe that this is going to be a paradigm-shifting section of the Bible for us. And So the framework for our study is simply going to be this. First, I want to look at ambition in verses 12 to 14. And second, I want to look at maturity in verses 15 to 16. Ambition and maturity. So in verses 12 to 14, we come to this concept of Christian ambition. And what you'll recall from moments ago when we read the entire chapter, is that Paul has just completed and written one of the most powerful statements on how a Christian is made righteous before God. Here's the question. This is, in a sense, the question above all questions. How does a Christian get right with God? This is a question of justification. How can a guilty sinner stand guiltless in front of a holy God? Paul gives us the answer. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is so important. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So how does a Christian get right with God? By anything within their power. No, only through faith in the righteousness of God. Through their good deeds? No, only through the righteousness of God. Through being a good moral person? Absolutely not. Not having a righteousness of my own, but only that righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Isn't that balm for the weary soul this morning? That there's nothing that you can do in order to get right with God, and therefore, if there's nothing you can do to get right with God, there's nothing you can do to get wrong with God after you've been made right with God. His righteousness alone is the cure for legalism. This is exactly what Paul is attacking here in the beginning of Philippians 3. There were false teachers. You might hear this word, Uh, in Bible circles called Judaizers. They were teaching that, yes, it's great that Jesus came, that he died on a cross, that he rose again. Yes, believe in him, but you still have to be circumcised. You still have to obey all of the old covenant laws in the same way that we did before the coming of Christ. And Paul is saying, none of that's going to get you right with God. Simply faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only answer to legalism. So if anyone ever says to you, the New Testament does not teach faith alone, one of the core components of the Protestant Reformation, faith alone, say, oh, really? Let's go to Philippians 3. Let's go to Philippians 3, 9, where clearly faith alone is the only way we get right with God. This is so important, and I hope and trust that you all believe this. Now, that's a long setup for this. What do we do now that God has done everything? There's a great Lutheran theologian. I'll probably butcher his last name, but I think his name is like Gerhard Forty. And he, he has this question. He says, sanctification, the process of growing in Christ, is figuring out what to do when you realize there's nothing to do. What do you do when you realize that Jesus has done everything? Because if the gospel is the cure for legalism, then should we just live a licentious life? That's the question, right? Can we do whatever we'd like? Can we live however we'd like? Does it lead to complacency, lethargy, a malaise? And in comes verses 12 to 16 with a very loud no. The gospel it's not just a cure for legalism, but it's also the cure for license. You cannot just live however you'd like. I, I can't do anything to get right with God, but the gospel says I cannot help but live a life worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1 27. If God has made me right with him, then who am I not to live a life in accordance with his will? 1 to 11, he attacks legalism. 12 to the end of the chapter, he attacks license. And incidentally, friends, these are the two deep heart things that are at play in the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son is the poster child for licentiousness. Everything that the father has is his, but out of total disregard for his father, he goes and lives out of selfish ambition. The younger son is licentious, but the older son, what is he? He's a legalist. He doesn't actually love his father. He's mad that the younger son got the fattened calf when he came back from all sorts of nonsense that he was doing. The father says, All that I have is yours, son. The gospel, though, is the cure both for the younger son's syndrome. And the older son syndrome, neither legalism nor licentiousness. These gospel distortions, they run deep in the human heart. And I almost guarantee that you can put yourself in one of these two categories this morning, not as a place where you live, but as a tendency that your heart goes to. Are you a legalistic person or a licentious person? I think we all naturally bend one way or the other, and Philippians, is our cure. So verse 12, Paul says, I haven't already obtained this. What's the this? It's the resurrection from verse 11. Not that I have already obtained the resurrection or am already perfect. In other words, what, what's the subliminal message that Paul is sending? I will not be perfect until when? Until the resurrection. He's equating these two things, that at the resurrection, that's when that good work that Christ began will be completed. So in some sense, he's saying, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But not in the way that you might hear your coworkers or friends say nobody's perfect. How do people usually use that? Well, it's after they did something they're really not proud of, and they use it as a license for the thing that they just did. Nobody's perfect, they say. Well, Paul is saying that, but from a totally different motive. Not that I've already obtained the resurrection or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it my own. He's exerting himself. Isn't that a great word? Exertion, energy, going toward one specific end. Now, we need to keep in mind, where is Paul when he's writing this? The dude's locked up in prison for preaching the gospel. The very thing that he's advocating that they grow in in, is the very thing that put him in prison. It's the gospel. So if anyone were tempted to believe that it doesn't matter how I live, I just got right with God. Now I can live however I'd like. Wouldn't it be Paul? Wouldn't this be a convenient time to say, I'm just going to be a secret disciple? Wouldn't this be a convenient time to say, I'm already saved. I'm going to have more friends at work if I'm not so loud about this Jesus thing. It's going to be less awkward with my family and friends at holidays if I can just cut out this Jesus thing. Jesus saved me. Now I'm just going to go live on Montana in the middle of nowhere and just wait till Jesus returns. Paul would love that, but he is unable to do that. Because the gospel has taken hold of him. Of all the people in the world, Paul has an excuse for living a licentious life, and yet he refuses to. Beloved, are you you tempted to that? Are you tempted to be a secret disciple? To just relax? Let your hair down? Play with sin a little bit? Play with licentiousness? Tomorrow I can start working hard for the Lord. Tomorrow's the devil's day. Today is the day that the Lord has made. I'm just, I just need a little bit bigger salary. I just need a, a little bit bigger of a house. I just need a little bit more comfort in my life as a secret disciple. We're all tempted to live this lifestyle in response to the grace of God, but Paul refuses. Now, remember, That ambition is seeking a specific goal, no matter the level of risk that's involved. Paul is living proof of that. One of the greatest sermons Paul probably ever preached was simply lifting up his shirt so that you could see the 40 lashes minus one that he had on his back for the sake of the gospel. This dude suffered for Jesus. And he remained ambitious for Jesus. How could I not? I press on to make the resurrection my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you sense the intensity? I strive. I exert myself. I'm ambitious for the resurrection. If we get this principle right, it will change so much. The gospel is opposed to earning, not effort. If we get that straight, so many things will be cleared up in our minds. The gospel is opposed to earning, but never effort. It's opposed to a sense of entitlement, but not to a sense of exertion. Because this is the mark of Christian maturity. Do you look at, if, even if we set aside spiritual things, do you look at your coworkers, and do you look at the laziest person and say, that's the most mature person at work? You look at the person who's there early, stays late, and is happy doing their work, and you say, they've tapped into something that reveals real structure in their heart, that reveals actual work ethic in them. That's the mature person. Is not that the same in the Christian life? This is the mark of Christian maturity. Now, why is Paul ambitiously pursuing The resurrection. Why is he seeking to, in his words, make it his own? He tells us, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make Jesus my own because he has already made me his own. Again, what precious language this is. Christ has already made me his own. The sanctification of ambition is entirely connected to the person of Jesus Christ. We can be ambitious because Christ was ambitious on our behalf. You ever heard someone describe Jesus as ambitious? Was he not the most ambitious person to ever live? You might know people who set what Jim Collins calls BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. You know anyone who sets BHAGs? Has anyone set a goal so high that they want to save the world from sin and death? Is that not the most ambitious task you could ever undertake? And yet Jesus undertook it and he fulfilled it. His crucifixion was not sprung on Jesus late in his life. He knew this as soon as he had consciousness that he was heading toward a Roman cross to die for the sake of his people. This actually helps us make sense of one of those strange stories in the New Testament. It's that one story we have. Between Jesus' infancy and his adulthood. And it comes in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is 12 years old. His family has just left Jerusalem after spending the holiday there after the Passover celebration. And sometime after his parents leave, they realize, we're missing Jesus. And filled with, I would suspect, all sorts of fear, they rush back to Jerusalem. And how astounding it would have been for them to find their 12 year old son in the temple, listening to the teachers of the law and asking questions. That's where they find him. He's in the temple. And this is what it says. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to Jesus, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If you turn to Luke 2, you'd see that there's a footnote there in the ESV. There's another way of of rendering this sentence. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus at age 12 knew that he had business to attend to. And that is the reason for his life. Jesus Christ, Paul says, came into the world to save sinners. What an ambition! How about from the very mouth of our Savior, Mark 10:45, The Son of Man did not come in order to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How about Luke 19 and verse 10? Just to make the point that Jesus is all about his Father's business. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is very self-conscious about the goal of his life. He was very ambitious for the one thing that he came to do. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? When Jesus came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, O God. This morning, I woke up to a lovely note from my wife on the counter of our bathroom and on it she had a really incisive quote from a good old French pastor she quoted him saying this when Christ himself appeared he declared that the reason for his advent was by appeasing God to gather us from death unto life this is why Jesus came to be ambitious for the salvation of the world if Christ were not ambitious we would not be saved Because Jesus was resurrected, we too can resurrect ambition and serve Jesus with it. I have good news for people who live in a decaying world, and that is that we can make Jesus our own because he has first made us his own. Jesus paid it all. Don't the the poets and the songwriters put it best? He has paid it all. Therefore, what? All to him I owe. That's the gospel right there, and that's the appropriate return, uh, response, I should say, to the gospel. We might be helped in this because there might be a disconnect. How can I already belong to Jesus and yet still need to make Jesus my own, right? It's kind of a disconnect for us. We might be helped by thinking about the process of adoption in the United States. An adoption is finalized through a court order. As soon as that court order has been finalized, the child is immediately and legally the child of their parents. Right then, the parents have made the child their own. But it might take years for that child, after sorting through all the circumstances that led to the adoption, to look at their adopted parents and make them their own. These are my parents. No, like my parents' parents. These are the ones who raised me and taught me. And showed me the way of the Lord. These are my parents. Yes, I was made their own when I was four weeks old. But now I have made them my own. Steve Jobs. Something a lot of people don't know about Steve Jobs. Was that he, he was adopted. And this is what he said about his adopted parents. He said, everything I am, I owe to my adopted parents. Paul and Clara Jobs. They got me into schools. They bought me whatever I wanted. They helped me when I needed it. In some ways. I feel that I owe them my life. It was two other people who realistically he could credit for his life, and yet he looks at those who made him their own and says, I owe my very existence to them. I have made them my parents. I press on to make Jesus my own, not in order that he'll make me his own, but because he has made me his own. Well, in case we missed it, he moves on to verse 13, and we'll move very briefly to maturity here in a moment, but verse 13, he doubles down on a few things. I do not consider that I have made it my own. Well, you just said that in verse 12, but he's just being clear. I'm not perfect yet, but I'm pursuing that day when I will see Jesus face to face, but then he doubles down on his exertion, right? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a sentence, but very opaque in the ESV, is it not? What does that mean? I mean, it looks like a cool sentence. This is what Paul is saying here. I'm pressing on to reach the end of the Christian race, and at the end of the race, there's a heavenly prize, and this prize is the goal of my whole life. The prize awaiting Paul was the return of Jesus that the one that he longed for. He was going to soon see face to face. Now do you remember what he says. At the end of 2nd Timothy. When he's writing to this young pastor. He says in 2nd Timothy 4:7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me. The crown of righteousness. Which the Lord the righteous judge. Will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. He endured to the end, and he's like, the prize is right here on the doorstep for me. I've ran the race. I've kept the faith, and here is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we need to be ambitious like Paul. We need to be ambitious for the gospel. We need to be ambitious for Christ. We need to be ambitious for the resurrection We will not passively attain the resurrection unto life. I will assure you that. No one passively attains the resurrection for life. Now, I hope what's becoming clear is that laziness is a serious, serious sin in the Christian life. Slothfulness is, let let me just put it as bluntly as the Bible puts it, is an abomination to God. And that's not as someone speaking to you who has conquered slothfulness or laziness. That's as someone who is on this journey as everyone else in this room is. But let's resolve in our hearts to be ambitious for the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. Note this, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That is any of the Apostles though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Isn't that amazing balance that Paul has? I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Oh, but by the way, it was actually just the grace of God in me. So when someone sees you exerting yourself for the gospel, they say, how do you do this? On one hand, it's you. On the other hand, it's not you. It's him who's working in you. Who's working in you? Of course, it's both you and God. God working in you. God working through you. So beloved, what are you ambitious for this year? What kind of goals have you set for this year? Are they self-centered or Christ-centered? Have you set spiritual goals? This isn't the only place where Paul talks about setting goals. He'll talk about short-term goals in Romans 15. He'll talk about the goals for his ministry in Colossians 1. And even as he sits in a prison cell, he's ambitious for the gospel. Well, per usual, I've spent far more time on the first point than I ought, but I hope that you're seeing that this is really important. If I'm going to say that ambition is something we ought to pursue, then we better be able to back it up from scripture. But here's where the kicker comes in, and it's maturity in verses 15 and 16. Because the final objection that Paul needs to overcome is this. Well, isn't this just for a select few? Isn't this just for the apostles and the disciples who walked with Jesus? Isn't this just for the pastors and the deacons, for the lay ministry leaders? Paul says that's not the case. Verse 14. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words... If you're not ambitious for the resurrection, then what? Then you're not mature. The standard of maturity is ambition for the resurrection. Is it the only thing? No, there's other things to be said about maturity in the New Testament, but it's certainly not less than this. The standard of maturity is ambition for the resurrection. You say to yourself, well, Paul, that's kind of elitist, is it not? Talking about maturity and immaturity. Paul, who are you to judge who's mature and immature. I didn't even put this together until Sophia read this morning, but Romans 14 talks about those who are strong and weak in the faith. It's a different way of talking about maturity and immaturity. The New Testament has no issue with these categories. And anyone who spends a little time with a group of believers in all humility can be like that person seems to be more mature in the faith than that person. It's the same Christ that they're saved by and it's the same Christ that they're loved by and some have made more progress in the race. It's just a flat-out truth in the Bible. So one example from Hebrews 5. Solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. J.C. Ryle says, without controversy, there's a vast difference among true Christians. There's an immense interval between the first and the last in the army of God. They're all fighting the same good fight, but how much more valiantly some fight than others. They're all doing the Lord's work, but how much more some do than others. They're all light in the Lord, but how much more brightly some shine than others. They're all running the same race, but how much faster some get on than others. They all love the same Lord and Savior, but how much more some love him than others. I ask any true Christian whether this is not the case. Are not these things so? And of course we have to answer, yes, these things are so. It doesn't make the more mature Christian, more loved by God. It just means they've exerted themselves more for the gospel. So what's the solution? That we would renew a sense of ambition for the things of the Lord. Christian maturity characterized by ambition for the resurrection. So if you want to be mature in Jesus Christ, then resolve this year to do everything within your power to pursue Jesus. You say that's the, hyper, that's the hyperbole of a preacher once again. Do everything within my power to pursue Jesus this year? Yes, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, with some of your strength, with some of your might. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Love God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your might. This has always been the standard for God's people. Once again, Paul is conceding here that perfection is not something that he has arrived at. It's not a state of being, but it's a process to be pursued. About 300 years after the church was born, there's a bishop named Gregory of Nyssa, and I've always found his idea of sanctification or growth, becoming more like Jesus to be utterly compelling to me. This is what he wrote. He says, let no one be grieved if he sees in his nature a proclivity for change. Don't be grieved if you constantly feel like you need to change. Changing in everything for the better, let him exchange glory for glory, becoming greater through daily increase, ever perfecting himself. For this is truly perfection never to stop growing towards what is better and never placing any limit on perfection. I think Paul would say amen to Gregory, and Gregory would say amen to what Paul is saying in Philippians 3. In other words, Christian perfection is knowing that you'll never be perfect until the resurrection of the dead. And even then, heaven is not a state of just isolation and idleness. It's a sense of exploring the majesty and wonder of who God is. Is the day of resurrection a perfect day? Yes, but perfection will continue to be something that we strive after. So why don't we get with the program right now, here and now, it's a liberating idea that those who are mature are constantly pursuing something bigger than themselves. We're in the process of becoming formed into the likeness of Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So, friends, here's the question. Is this how you think? How much have you thought about the resurrection this morning? How much did you pursue Jesus Christ with all your ambition this week? How much did you exert yourself for the sake of the gospel? Is this how you think? Is this how I think? Is this how we think as a church? Are we known as a congregation that's ambitious for the kingdom of God? If this is the case, if this is the case that we need to be ambitious for the gospel, then we need to get really comfortable with change. We need to get extraordinarily comfortable with things changing all the time. We're not changing the gospel God is not changing, but the very things that don't change, namely the gospel and God, are constantly changing things for better, from glory to glory. Beloved, let's be ambitious for the resurrection. Let's get really comfortable with a lot of change a lot of the time. And then he says in verse 15, by the way, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul's This is a nice way of Paul being like, If you don't think this way, you're wrong. It's essentially what he's saying. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Well, if God's going to reveal to you something different, that means that your initial starting point was wrong. But he's not just taking a shot at them, is he? He's giving them great hope. I'm confident that God will change your thinking. I stand here as just one member in this church, confident that everyone sitting in these pews, will adopt this mindset that everyone here will be ambitious for the resurrection. I am sure that he will reveal that also to you. Ambition for the resurrection is the norm. It's the baseline. It's the standard. It's the floor, so to speak, of Christian maturity. If you want to be mature, then let's pursue this. One last verse, verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is saying, If you've made progress in the Christian race, don't gloat over any spiritual progress in your life. Don't don't look back at the the path that you've already covered. Just keep looking forward. You ever seen a marathon runner just start jogging backwards all of a sudden to look back? No, they just, just keep running forward for 23 more miles or however far you've gotten. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Let's not look back. Do not wonder how good your life would be if Jesus didn't save you. Don't wonder about the pleasures that you're missing out on now that Jesus has saved you. That's the wrong way of thinking. Don't look back, only look forward. Because Jesus has made us his own, we can make Jesus our own. So on this first Sunday of the year, can we all agree collectively that we're going to pursue one thing this year? Whether or not not you consent or not, I'm opting you into a church-wide goal that we are all going to pursue the resurrection from the dead this year. We should all have this in common. One thing I seek, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's agree that this year we are going to be as ambitious as ever for Jesus Christ. This is God's will for our life. But just like that is the final product of that condo building, we need smaller goals to get to that day. And I wish you knew how tempted I am to lay down 10 specific things for everyone here. But God forbid that I do that because we each got to run our own race. But let me assure you that you must set spiritual goals this year. You need To think about how you are going to attain the resurrection from the dead, how you are going to endure in Christ. It's not going to happen passively. Some things to think about. How ambitious are you for Christian community? Where you're talking to people about the Bible, where you're reading the Bible with people, not just at the Sunday gathering, though that's great, but you're praying for each other. You're confessing sin. You're you're exhorting one another. How ambitious are you for that? What would it look like if you set a goal to share the gospel with one person every week? That'd be quite a spiritual goal, would it not? I'm not prescribing anything here. I'm just giving some fodder. What would it look like to have that kind of goal? Well, we say every Tuesday at 8 p.m. I watch a show for one hour. What would it look like if we set aside one hour every week to seek the Lord in prayer? Just some ideas. What would it look like to finally resolve to read the Bible on a daily basis? What does ambition look like in your life? Friends, would you have the humility to ask a brother and sister in Christ to review the spiritual goals that you set this year? That's a vulnerable thing to do because it says a lot about what you desire, what you want to do this year. Do you have the humility to talk to a mentor, a brother, sister sitting in these pews, a pastor, a deacon, anyone To look over the goals that you've set. I believe that if we set our minds solely on Jesus and his resurrection, we are going to see more growth both in depth and in breadth this year than we could ever imagine. God's will for your life is that you be bold for Jesus, zealous for him, ambitious for him, and diligent for him. I close with Colossians 3. I just want you to hear this as God's will for your life. Whatever you do, church, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more info, for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.